Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. never going to understand how critical this particular time in history is. We have $7.7 trillion worth of economic events that are going to hit America in the gut. This is an economy of one with Gary Rathbun, president and CEO of Private Wealth Consultants, the free market voice, free market voice. of the U.S., enhancing and protecting private wealth. Gary Rathbun has over 30 years of experience in making the best choices for you to keep more of what you earn. It's life, liberty, and the pursuit of self-reliance. An economy of one with Gary Rathbun. This is Greetings and welcome again to An Economy of One. I am your host, Gary Rathman. Our website, aneconomyofone.com. Aneconomyofone.com, as is our Facebook, An Economy of One. Go there, check us out, see what my producers put on every day. And you'll want to keep track of these uh, websites today because a little bit later in the show... Kurt Lippold, Commander Kurt Lippold is going to be joining us. You remember him. He's retired from the United States Navy, but he was the commander of the USS Cole when it got attacked by suicide bombers in Yemen. So he'll be joining us a little later, and you want to make sure that you hang around for that. You know, earlier this week, the uh, Federal Open Market Committee meeting minutes came out. Federal Open Market Committee meeting minutes. And uh, that's the Federal Reserve. For those of you who don't know, I mean, everybody refers to it, the FOMC meeting, but uh, uh, it's the Federal Reserve. And they came out and uh, essentially said that they're going to raise interest rates in December. They didn't come right out and say it definitively, but they pretty much heavily implied that they were going to raise rates in December. And the market took off. The market liked that news. Now, in months past, when the Fed came out and said, uh, possibly, it's a live possibility. Remember that last month? A live possibility that we're going to raise. The, the market didn't like, like that language. market doesn't like uncertainty. So if it can be relatively certain about something, no matter what it is, the market will react generally favorably. To that, So they're going to raise interest rates probably in December. I'm still of the school that well, I'm up to 50-50. Uh, I said a while back that they absolutely wouldn't raise rates. I still don't think they are, but they might. The thing is that if they do raise interest rates, it's merely a token. They will raise interest rates probably 25 basis points, a fourth of 1%. And they'll continue to do that going forward or they'll... 
they'll uh, keep talking about it, at least as long as there's no negative effect on prices. Everything is prices in the market. What is the price of something? You notice we're not concerned with the value of something anymore. We're just concerned with the price. So as long as raising interest rates doesn't negatively affect prices, they'll keep doing it. As long as the increases are relatively irrelevant to the market and pricing, they're good to go. The minute they get the hint that it's going to have a negative effect on market prices, then they'll back off. Wall Street has gotten to the point, the big institutional money has gotten to the point where they they got to have cheap credit and interest rates are near zero, which means that money is pretty cheap. You can borrow money pretty cheaply. And that's where Wall Street makes its money. They will borrow money pretty cheaply, invest in something that goes up in price, and uh, keep the profits. So they're making profits on money that isn't their own. So they're borrowing money cheap, making money, paying it back, doing it again. If interest rates start going up, it kind of destroys that whole template. So as money becomes, shall we say, less cheap, then profits go down, and it makes the risk less worthy, less worthwhile. So Wall Street demands cheap money. 25 basis points, a fourth of 1% isn't going to be a big deal yet. But so far, the more definitive language coming out of the Federal Reserve, the market seemed to like. Now, speaking of the Federal Reserve, on Thursday this week, the House voted on what they call the Form Act. This is uh, House of Representatives 3189. House of Representatives uh, H.R. 3189. It's from the uh, House of Representatives, and it it represents the uh, monitoring or monetary policy put out by the Federal Reserve. Now, this is something that uh, Ron Paul has called for virtually his entire career is some oversight on the Federal Reserve and auditing the Federal Reserve. Now, in this bill, now it passed 241 to 185. And you know me, God knows we don't need another law on the books or more legislation out there. But the fact is, this is a pretty good piece of legislation. It has four aspects to the FORM Act. FORM is Federal Oversight Reform and Modernization Act of 2015, the FORM Act. The first is it's going to require the Federal Reserve to operate under a rules-based framework. Now, the importance of this, the significance of this, it makes their actions more predictable. If the rules say when inflation hits 2.1%, uh, I'm making this up, by the way. I'm, I'm giving you an example. So the inflation hits 2.1% and unemployment is at 5. Then we will raise interest rates 25 basis points, and we will continue to raise interest rates every quarter until inflation is below 2% and unemployment is no higher than 6% or something like that. It, it gives us predictable actions 
out of the Federal Reserve. Now, central banks don't like rules. I don't blame them. I don't like rules either. And if I was a central bank, I wouldn't like those rules. But there are, I hate to use the word rules, there are rules that uh, you need to follow being a central bank and laying out their monetary policy. Very important. The legislation says that it has to be rules-based, but the Fed can essentially set its own rules and it can break its rules going forward. So they still have the flexibility, but it gives some accountability and some predictability to the Fed's actions. And if they decided to ignore or break rules, then they got to explain that to Congress. Second provision is to restrict the Fed's emergency lending authority. For, for a long time, the Fed has lent money to insolvent firms and uh, uh, not only insolvent firms, but insolvent firms around the world. Well, now it has to disclose that or eliminate that part of the lending authority. Taxpayers subsidize those loans. We subsidize the interest rate. And that can be a real problem going forward. Third aspect of the Forum Act is audit the Fed. Bring in the Government Accountability Office, the GAO, to audit the Fed. The GAO is an independent, nonpartisan congressional watchdog that regularly investigates federal agencies. This is Ron Paul's contention forever, is if we can't eliminate the Fed, we need to audit it and see what it's doing. Let, it, let, let us find out what the results are of the policy actions they've taken. The final aspect of the Forum Act is what they call to uh, establishing the Centennial Monetary Commission. Now, they, they, this is a commission uh, established to examine the United States monetary policy, evaluate alternative monetary regimes, and recommend a course for monetary policy going forward. Uh, this allows Congress to to get their fingers in into the Federal Reserve Bank again. Now, shouldn't need this because by constitutional decree, Congress is responsible for monetary policy. It's just in 1913, they laid off the responsibility to the Federal Reserve, which was created then, and... Uh, got Congress out of the obligation of monetary policy that might cost them votes from time to time. So, Form Act, good thing. Uh, Not excited. President Obama's going to veto it and scrap it all anyway, but at least we're in the conversation. Up next, we're going to take a look at free speech and the First Amendment in this country. We're starting to see some trends that are probably going to go past, go further out than college campuses. We'll take a look at that next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. I'm sure all of you have seen the news, heard all the pundits talking about 
uh, stuff going on college campuses uh, around the country. And I purposely have not uh, gotten too involved in talking about that. Um, I guess probably because I don't have a lot of respect for college kids that haven't spent any time living life yet, but yet they're smarter than I am. Uh, they know better than our founding fathers, know better than than everybody else. But I'm starting to see some some very disturbing trends there, and most importantly, trends to the First Amendment. Now, I forget who said it uh, this week, but they coined a phrase that I'd never heard of, and uh, they coined the phrase cry bullies. Cry bullies. I wish I could give attribution to where I heard that. Uh, but I don't remember. But it's it's interesting uh, what these college kids, and I do say kids on purpose, um, are trying to do and go for. Now, if we look at the First Amendment, Congress shall make no law respecting the an establishment of religion or prohibiting the free exercise thereof. Of course, unless we're talking about... Uh, a wedding cake for a gay couple or perpetual funding for women's health clinics uh, because that's the right thing to do. Or the press, unless the press invades safe spaces designated by mobs or writes about incorrect topics at incorrect times. And to petition the government for a redress of grievances unless they are members of a pre-designated special interest group that the IRS doesn't approve of. That's pretty much the state of our First uh, First Amendment today. People are trying to, and, and they are, prosecuting companies for their stance, their opinion on climate change. If you remember a while back, Chick-fil-A uh, was denied uh, any franchises in the city of Boston because of uh, the CEO's position on... Uh, uh, same-sex marriage. The, the, the trouble I'm seeing here is it's just not the fragile little snowflakes on campus who uh, want to be a cry bully that wants to figure out a way of being a victim and be offended so they can uh, yell at people and, and feel rational about it. But the people around it that are rationalizing the chilling of free speech. The, I don't know if you remember, a while back, Chris Cuomo of CNN, a lawyer, uh, he, he tweeted this, that hate speech is excluded from protection under the First Amendment. Uh, no, it's not. You know, liberty is messy sometimes. Free speech is messy sometimes. And free speech, the, the, the First Amendment is there to protect speech that you disagree with, not protect speech that you agree with. It's there to protect things that are contrary to you. The trouble is, is stuff like this and, and college presidents uh, uh, leaving, resigning, board members uh, resigning, teachers um, uh, be, being intimidated into uh, not saying things, uh, posters being taken down that, that clearly are, are free. So it, it scares people. People are scared. 
They're scared to be accused of bigotry or re, uh, racism because you, you can't prove a negative. How do you prove you're not racist? How do you prove that you're not prejudiced? That's very hard, and it can ruin people's careers simply by being accused. I could give you 20 stories. If we look at radical Islam, which uh, we're going to in our next segment with uh, Commander Kurt Lippold, if we look at radical Islam, they, they want to kill you for free speech. They want to take your life for drawing a cartoon, for making a statement, for writing a book, for writing an article. First Amendment is the First Amendment for a reason. It was the first thing on our founding father's mind, the very first thing that was very, very important. More important today than it was back then. Now, the college campuses, this is all right fascism. You look at Amherst University, and, you know, they try to um, wrap their demands in compassion, but the fact is it's a threat to people who disagree with them. And they came right out and said, we will organize and respond in a radical manner, manner through civil disobedience. If there is a continued failure to meet our demands, it will result in an escalation of our response. Now, that is a threat. I don't care who you are. Part of Amherst College demands, um, they wanted... Uh, uh, students and administrative people, all that, that put up a poster that said free speech is the true victim of the Missouri protests. Free speech. <coughs> they wanted that prosecuted. The fact that somebody said all lives matter. They wanted that prosecuted. This is fascism, pure and simple. I got no problem with free speech. I got no problem with these kids that are ignorant of life saying stupid stuff that I disagree with. No problem. But when they try to intimidate and prevent other people from a contrary view or even expressing themselves, then I got a problem. What starts on campus eventually ends up in society. And this is fascism pure and simple and we got to nip it in the bud now i think we nip it in the bud by parents who know better quit paying the tuition that'll fix them coming up next commander kurt lippold former commander of the uss cole will be joining me you won't want to miss that i'm gary rathman it's an economy of one gary rathman an economy of one to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. We're joined now by Commander Kurt Lippold. He's a United States Navy retired. 
He was a commanding officer of the USS Cole when it came under suicide terrorist attack by al-Qaeda in Yemen. During his command, he and his crew distinguished themselves by saving the American warship from sinking. He currently serves as a president of Lippold Strategies, LLC, a consulting firm specializing in executive leadership development and long-range strategic planning, and certainly one of my favorites. Commander, welcome back to the show. Thanks, Gary. Great to be on the show again. Uh, you know, the uh, the uh, Islamists, the radicals, came out with a video saying they're going to strike America at its center, meaning Washington, D.C. Um, one, is, is this a credible threat? I mean, you got to take it seriously. But how capable are they? I mean, the, the French came out and said <clears throat> they need to be prepared for everything, including biological, chemical, and nuclear, like a dirty bomb or something, attacks. In your opinion, your knowledge, uh, how capable are these people of doing that in this country, in Washington, D.C., or New York, or Chicago, or, or something like that? Well, uh, obviously the capability exists in their ability to carry off that Paris attack and do it without any warning. Mm -hmm. Whether they can put it together here in the United States, I think is going to remain to be seen. Um, I think that getting folks into the United States to put together that type of operation would be much more difficult. You got to remember, ISIS is not that old. Right. Al Qaeda was, a, you know, well over a decade or almost a decade old when they executed, you know, the the attack on USS Cole, you know, my ship, and when they mm -hmm. executed the nine eleven attacks. ISIS hasn't been around long enough to develop the capability to carry out an operation by getting people into a country, by integrating them into a community, by making them to appear to be normal and have a normal life, normal jobs, a normal pattern of doing things, then to be able to get, get together all of the equipment, the assets, be able to conduct training, simulate the walkthrough to be able to do it without weapons, to be able to be in the right place at the right time and pretend like they were going through with the, uh, with the attack, and then do it with maybe dummy stuff, uh, you know, dummy rounds, dummy, dummy weapons, dummy uh, uh, improvised explosive devices, and then executing an attack. Because that takes time, and it's going to take years. Will they continue to gain that capability if we do not begin to look at targeting ISIS directly? Absolutely, yes. Now, that begs another question, uh, because I have my own opinions uh, on uh, this. And, of course, President Obama has never called me and asked me my opinion. But how, how do we attack ISIS? I mean, the, the Swedish foreign minister came out um, yesterday or earlier today and said it's down to, to two things. We either have to accept a desperate situation or resort to violence. Um, how, do we, how, how do we fix this? I mean, it, kill them? I mean, I, I, and, and how do we do that? Well, I'm one of those that it, it's, it's a multi-pronged approach. The first thing we need to do is start to create is, number one, the United States is the only nation on this earth that has the robust capability to be able to take on ISIS head on. Mm -hmm. That said, 
I am not. I am one that does not believe we need to put massive amounts of ground troops into the Middle East again in order to take on and defeat this threat. What we can do with that incredible capability that we have is begin to exercise and force those nations that are over there living with the problem, that are next door to the problem, who are allowing ISIS to have access to the financial markets, the weapons, the oil sales, all those things that are supporting them. We need to start targeting them and saying, here's what we know about how you are helping out ISIS financially. Mm-hmm. or about what is going on in your country that you may not even be aware of because you don't have robust enough intelligence services like we do, and be able to point that out to these countries and say, it's your job now to target them, and if you don't, we will. And if we have to do it, we are going to punish you as well. So we have to create the conditions for the nations over there to be the ones to take on ISIS first and give them as many resources as we possibly can to do that. And if the day comes where we have to introduce forces in there, I think we do it in a very targeted and limited manner mm-hmm. in coordination with other nations so that we can leverage the minimal number of people we have over there to the maximum effect in letting the countries over there defeat ISIS. You know, I, I was uh, I'm, uh, I'm very glad to hear you say that because that's my thought until the host countries, until the other Muslims, they know who the bad guys are, or they, they can find out if, if they want to. Until those countries get into the fight, um, I, I, I just don't see us being able to contain this threat completely. Uh, Gary, you're right on the mark, and, and I'll tell you, it is unfortunate to a degree. I think that George Bush, when 9-11 broke out, somewhat overloaded himself because He stood there and told our nation, these people, you're either with us or you're against us. Mm -hmm. Well, guess what? Being against us means that you're not getting the money, you're not getting the weapons, you're not getting the sanctuary. All those things are being tolerated by the other Sunni nations over there, Saudi Arabia, UAE, Oman. All those countries are tolerating it because... ISIS is a radical Sunni Muslim terrorist organization. And the bottom line is those Arab countries over there have got to be, we have to start calling them to task for what's happening. And until we start doing that, we are not going to be able to go after ISIS. You have to get to the root foundation, to to the very core of what is allowing ISIS to even exist as an entity. And if that comes back to those key things, number one, they have to have the money. Right now, people right. are know that they're, they're the richest terrorist organization in the world. Yeah. Fine. Right. Go after their money. There are ways to figure it out. Go into those banks and say, this is, this is the money trail. Here's what you're going to do. That, that account just got zeroed out. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Freeze that money. And we have to start doing that because unless we do – then eventually the attacks are going to come here to the United States. They're going to expand in capability and in scope. You're not going to see thousands die like 9-11. You're going to see tens of thousands die. We don't need to see that happening because then we will have no choice but to introduce massive ground forces into the Middle East, which has its own complicating set of issues that we should do our best to avoid. 
No, why? No, I totally agree with you on that. I mean, we are on the same page, but <clears throat> it makes perfect sense. Why are we not doing that? Why is our leadership not initiating that strategy? Uh, you know, Gary, I, I, I don't know. And if they are even initiating it, why can't the they be up front with the American people and say mm-hmm. this is what we're doing? I think there's a lot of quiet work uh, that has gone on for years. I mean, a great example is even when we were having the disagreement with the French over Iraq during the George W. Bush administration, the cooperation on the intelligence front between our two two nations was superb. Mm-hmm. It has always been good. So. Don't confuse politics with the ability of nations to work together to go after a threat. Even with the Russians, with given the circumstances going on in Ukraine, in Georgia, with the invasions there, and all the other complications that Russia has done, we still share a lot of intelligence with these threats to ensure that both of our nations stay safe. Now, it was uh, uh, announced recently uh, before the Paris uh, attacks that uh, we had killed Jihad John and we killed him with a drone strike. And it seems to me like whenever we kill the current leader um, or mastermind, if you want to use that term, uh, it does very little in, in slowing down ISIS. I mean, when you have an enemy that doesn't wear a uniform and their, their highest honor is to die for their cause, uh, it just creates a, an opportunity for the next guy to move up in line and, and be the leader. Does does killing the leader really help? I mean, you're on the other side of the equation. You know the military. Does announcing that we killed Jihad John, does that help? I think it helps on two fronts. Number one, it sends a signal to the organization that we have the capability and credibility that if you go to harm us, we're going to come after you and we're going to hunt you down, capture you or kill you. And since obviously this administration doesn't believe in capturing anyone because they want to close Guantanamo Mm -hmm. and not have any place to gain intelligence from these people, then we have to kill them. In doing that, you have to remember, every high-level leadership guy that you kill You've just killed an intelligence resource that you chose not to capture. You know, once again, from the sidelines, which is where I sit, um, it doesn't always appear that we're gaining any ground or or even holding our own. So it's it's important to to understand what these victories mean or what these actions mean. And uh, it gives me confidence, gives me uh, energy, I guess, to support the cause a little more. Well, and I think you're absolutely right. The one thing that I would point out, though, Gary, is that we have become so risk averse Mm -hmm. in going after these high value targets that we are unwilling to have any um, collateral damage or casualties that a lot of times we pass up these targets. And look, there may come a point that someone is so high value you want to make darn sure you get them. And rather than putting a 250-pound, you know, missile into them, it may in fact call for leveling a couple square city blocks with a 2,000-pounder right. JDAM, you know, a joint defense mm-hmm. attack munition, where you're going to make darn sure that not only he's taken out, but all the supporters around him. And I'm, I, I feel bad when that happens. You know, you don't like to see it. 
But at some point, you have to make those decisions. And I think the military, because of the political pressures, has become so risk averse that we are more concerned with the politics of the moment than the than the military necessity to eliminate a threat to our country and our allies. Mm -hmm. You know, I, I think that's an important point to make because every military man or woman I have met, uh, you, you give them the word. They'll go do the job. So it's it's Absolutely. it's it's not guys like you that are risk averse. It's the politicians that that are afraid they might lose a vote if uh, if they make a bad decision or the wrong decision or it doesn't turn out the way they think it should. And I go back to what John Paul Jones, the founder of the United States Navy, said, he who will not risk cannot win. Right, right. That's absolutely right. Well, we've been speaking with Commander Kurt Lippold, United States Navy retired. He was the commanding officer of the USS Cole and currently serves as president of Lippold Strategies, LLC. Commander, once again, I appreciate all your time. You've been very generous with us. I know there's a lot of people reaching out and grabbing you uh, during this time. And uh, thank you so much for your time. And I hope we can tap you on the shoulder again soon. Absolutely, Gary. Thank you for having me on the show again. Wonderful as always and uh, great discussion. Thank you very much. You're a great American. Thanks for your service. We'll talk to you soon. Up next, I'm going to tell you my solution for the Syrian refugee problem in the United States. I'll give you a hint. I say let them in. I'll tell you why next. An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Back to An Economy of One with Gary Rathbun. Yeah, we got some uh, interesting news out of the International Monetary Fund uh, this week. Uh, the IMF, uh, the uh, uh, head of the IMF, Christine Lagarde, uh, officially greenlighted the Chinese yuan or the uh, renminbi into the basket of currencies called the special drawing rights. Now, we've talked about this a couple of times, but it uh, looks like it's going to happen. And I've told you my opinion. I don't care. The special drawing rights is a basket of currencies that ends up loaning money to emerging markets and third world countries. Now, we are by far, the United States, by far the largest member or partner in the uh, special drawing rights. And we still will be after... They bring in the Chinese yuan. But if China wants to take over some of that responsibility of loaning to other countries, I'm all for it. Beijing is, has worked hard for several years to be included in the special drawing rights. And there's some advantage to that. It, it, it adds a lot more liquidity to your currency and allows you to borrow money easier on the international market, that kind of stuff. And like I said, we're still the biggest uh, partner in that. It's going to reduce our exposure, but I, I don't think it'll affect us uh, negatively, nor will it affect the uh, reserve status of our currency worldwide. It will, however, force China into some reforms around their currency. As you know, they heavily manipulate their currency. They 
They uh, manipulated a lot this last August to devalue it, to support their exports and consequently support their uh, stock market. And uh, they do that on a regular basis. Uh, That's going to be harder to do being part of the IMF special drawing rights. People will only use their currency if they have confidence in the exchange rate compared to other currencies. So China, you know what? Your past practice of arresting stock shorters, uh, fund managers, uh, doubling margin requirements at will, crushing anybody who dares sell the currency in the open market, or God forbid they leave uh, the country and take some currency with them, not going to be able to do that without a lot of backlash uh, going forward. Now, it's not in yet. Still got to vote on it. And if the United States decides they don't want the currency there, uh, it won't happen. But this administration has given every indication that they support the Chinese currency and uh, uh, won't oppose it being part of the special drawing rights. So that happened this week. That's something that uh, very little reporting has done because of uh, all the activity in France and uh, uh, the terrorist uh, uh, activities in in Paris. But uh, from an economic standpoint and a world economic standpoint, very important. Now, many people have talked, and there's even legislation been introduced in the House and uh, Senate about stopping the immigrants or the refugees coming in from Syria. The uh, uh, number of immigrants or refugees going into Europe is huge, and 70% of them are young men, not the widows and orphans that President Obama would have you believe. 70% are young men. Now, in this country... um, The government has said, no, 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 we'll vet them, make sure we don't allow any terrorists in. That that, that statement hadn't, the the echo of that statement hadn't even died yet, and they caught eight Syrian terrorists, would-be terrorists, radical Muslims, trying to get across the border in Texas with fake passports. Now, I have a solution. You know, uh, people have said we can can sort out the Christians from the Muslims, let the in, leave the Muslims out, and as much as it pains me, I don't think that's the way to do things, not only from a First Amendment standpoint, but uh, um, it, 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 how do you know they're telling the truth? We don't have the database to do background on these people, so how do we determine whether they're the right type of person? Well, I came up with an idea. See if you agree. Go to my Facebook and see if you agree with this idea. I say we let them all in. Anybody that wants to come, let them in. Tell them we'll uh, take care of their family. We'll house and feed their their uh, wife and their children. We'll educate them, give them health care, all that kind of stuff. But you, father, dad, single male, whatever, you just bought yourself a two-year stint in the Army. And uh, suit them up, train them, send them back to Syria. See if they will defend their country and defend their new country with a gun. If they uh, spend two years in Syria, in the Army, you know what? Good enough. You're in. Welcome home. You're now an American. I find it hard to believe that any of these radical Muslims that want to hurt our country 
would put on our uniform and shoot other radical Muslims. That's my idea. Let me know what you think. If you want to hear the rest of uh, Commander Lippold's interview, go to Facebook and economyofone.com. I want you to have a great day. Be an individual. Be self-reliant. Be an economy of one. I'm Gary Rathman. We'll see you next time. This is our country. The views expressed on this program do not necessarily reflect the views of this station. Listeners should consult their own financial advisors or conduct their own due diligence before making any financial decisions. Private Wealth Consultants is an SEC-registered investment advisor. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.